Our gracious Father, we thank you. And we pray along with the words of that song and with the words of Jesus in the garden that we want your will to be done in our lives. We want your will done in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our city, in our families. God, we want your will to be done. We have ideas, we have, we have thoughts, we make plans. And uh, Father, we can toss them all aside so that your will can be done in our lives. I pray, God, that you would give us the grace to surrender to you. As we look into your word this morning, we pray as your word teaches us that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would be our guide, that he would be the one to lead us into all truth. And I pray he would this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions. For we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. And he, they did so. And made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now we left off in Luke with Jesus taking his disciples to a place where they could rest. Um, earlier on, uh, the first nine verses of, or sorry, the first, yeah, really 11 verses, um, Jesus sent out the 12, basically on a, a, a missions trip. And they go out, they come back, they tell him what's going on, and he takes them aside in verse 10 to uh, privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. The multitudes knew it and they followed him. And so he received them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And that's where we were at. When the crowds followed him, Jesus received them and he healed them. And that's the place that we lead into today when Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Now, something I want to remind you, and I actually just pulled this out of my notes from the last time we were here. Um, when we were in verse 11... We talked about, uh, from the book, living or praying like monks and living like fools, about how Jesus' posture here is one of not being hurried. Jesus often spent time alone with his father, which is what I think he was trying to do with his disciples. They went out into the deserted place. Uh, we know uh, from our solitude study that that word is eremos. And while it says deserted place, don't think of it like the desert. It's a place of solitude. It's a place away from the distractions of the world. And they went out there for the purpose of getting some rest and some spending some time away from everything else. Now, while they were there, he was interrupted. And he allowed himself to be interrupted because of his love for the people. Now, Tyler Statton said in his book that hurry kills love. 
but being still before God brings us into a place and makes us a people of unhurried love. The devil always wants to hurry us. God wants us to be still before him in Psalm 46, 10. As apprentices to Jesus, we are being transformed into his image and we are being made more like our master and he taught us to rest. But he also taught us to love. He taught us to be intentional in our lives, to be good stewards over the life and resources God has given us, but also to be interruptible. We need to be so unhurried in our lives that God can interrupt us at any time. And I really I like that. Now, what I'm not going to do is challenge you to pray and ask God to help you be unhurried or to ask God to help you be interruptible. Because I promise, when you pray that, he will find a way to slow you down and he will give you many opportunities to be interrupted. I'm saying that facetiously. You should pray for it. But it carries with it the same connotation of praying for patience. When you pray for patience, God doesn't give you patience. He gives you opportunities to be patient. When you ask God to bring you into a place of unhurried love, where you can be intentional in your life and interruptible, God will give you opportunities to practice that. And that's where we get to. We're in verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. And I think we see the disciples' anxiety. As the day wears on, the disciples are clearly anxious about the situation. They're probably frustrated. They are certainly tired. So imagine you go away on a missions trip. And whether it's a week or two weeks or a month or six months or whatever it is, you get back and your one goal, I need, I need, I need some rest, right? And your master says, all right, you know what? Yeah, let's go get some rest. And you go off to this place to get rest and thousands of people show up, right? It's the Bible tells us he fed 5,000, but it says specifically 5,000 men. Most commentators and scholars agree that it was probably somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. Most likely, if the men had wives with them, and maybe not all of them did, and if all the husbands and wives had one child, where some of them may have had two or three, 10 to 15,000 people is a, is a fairly good estimate. So 15,000 people show up while you're on vacation. And your master looks at them and says, hey, yeah, we need to go. Uh, we need to go somewhere else. No, he receives them. He starts teaching them. He starts healing them. Now, the day has worn on, which means this is later in the day. They could have been at this for eight, nine, ten, who knows how many hours. And the disciples say, hey, we finally have a way out. Well, we'll tell Jesus they need to go. Right? That's the first thing they say. Send them away. And the disciples' logic is fine, humanly speaking. You have 15,000 people in the middle of nowhere. There's, there's no restaurants. There's no food trucks. Nobody packed a lunch. 
Nobody has, you know, they're not really close to a body of water so everybody could go fishing. And even if they could, that's a lot of fish to catch, right? Nobody, nobody's got a way to bake bread or they don't have enough money to even go buy what they could possibly use, right? When Jesus says, you give them something to eat, they, they say, well, all we have is five loaves and two fish. What are we going to do with that? And we can't even go buy food. So their point was, if they want to eat, they need to go someplace. They need to get, they need to find a McDonald's and a Holiday Inn. And, right? Because otherwise, what, what are we going to do? And I think this shows their hurry, right? They had been interrupted enough and they wanted this day to be over with. Anybody ever been there? Right? You're doing something, you know it's the right thing to do. And you get to the point where you've had enough of doing the right thing for the day and you want it to be over. Um, it doesn't always work that way. The second thing they say to Jesus is this is all we've got. Upon Jesus' instruction to give them something to eat, which we're going to get to in a moment, they continue their human logic and they explain their lack. Their lack of food, their lack of money, and they use this inability or this lack as an excuse to not do what Jesus commanded them to do. This shows, again, their anxiety. They were told to do something that they could not do, and they made excuses as to why they couldn't do it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 5 through 12, we read this. When the disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware or that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Leaning on our own understanding will kill our faith. Leaning on our own understanding will kill our faith. We actually did a series, it was within the first five or six months that I was here, so this was several years back, uh, but you can still find it on our, our website, I think. And if you can't and you really want to listen to it, let me know. Uh, but we did a series called Faith Killers. And this was one of the faith killers. Trying to understand, using our own human reasoning, our own logic. I mean, look throughout the scripture and how many times God has asked his people to suspend their logic. Not because what he was going to do was illogical, but because they didn't understand it. Right? He tells Moses, lead the people out. They come to this huge body of water, the Red Sea. 
the Egyptian army behind them, an impassable body of water in front of them. They think they're going to die. The pillar of fire creates a barrier, which is God, between Moses and the Egyptians. And he tells Moses, use your staff. He goes and he uses his staff and he parts a body of water and they walk through it on dry land. That's incredible. Now, how, do you think Moses, now they'd seen a lot, but do you think when God said, lift up your staff, the first thing that came to Moses' mind was, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to move the water. That's not what came to Moses' mind. I think the Prince of Egypt, I talk about that movie a lot. Um, I'm, they're doing a live action remake. I'm not sure about that because the cartoon was, was cinematic perfection. But um, they do this scene where he, he parts the water and all the people are standing there looking at it like, now what? And in the movie, uh, they, they have, is Aaron, the Bible doesn't say that, but Aaron, Moses' older brother, is the first one to walk out into it. Because God didn't say he wasn't going to drop the water on their heads. God didn't say that the Egyptians wouldn't, right? He didn't say anything. He just parted the water and said, go. There was nothing about that moment that made sense. But it worked. And God did it. Think about Samuel when he went, uh, God, uh, you know, Saul had disobeyed God and, and, and God wanted a new king instead of Saul. So he sends him to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and Jesse's first son comes in, a big strapping lad. And Samuel thinks, oh, this is going to be the new king. And God says, nope. And then six more brothers, five more brothers. David was the seventh. Six, uh, five more brothers after the first. And every time God says no, and he looks at Samuel and goes, you're looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. Samuel finally says to Jesse, who's left? And he goes, well, the runt is out in the field with the sheep. Uh, they estimate, right? The Bible doesn't tell us this, but they estimate David was actually only about five foot two, five foot three. He was not a big guy. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. So picture a guy who's probably six, five, six, six compared to this kid who's 5'2", who went out against a nine-foot giant. He comes in, and God says, that's him. Samuel pours the oil over his head. Did that make sense? That didn't make sense. But then we can continue reading in Scripture and see what God did in David's life. And we could keep going on like that, but just what about the gospel? We are hopeless apart from Christ. No forgiveness, no salvation, no purpose, no hope. And so God sent his son, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose again three days later. And what are we asked? And we're going to get into this in a minute, so I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But what are, we, what are we asked? Are we asked to do some great thing to prove ourselves worthy of the cross? No, because we can't. What are we asked to do? Believe. And even the belief, even the faith to believe is a gift. A work of God's Holy Spirit. So trusting in the Lord doesn't mean we have to understand what he's doing. Trusting in the Lord means that we rely on him and surrender ourselves to him even when we don't understand and even when he asks us to do the impossible. 
So I'm going to read verse 12, and I'm going to read up through verse 15. Again, so as the day began to wear on, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country, and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. And there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down. So first we looked at the two things that the disciples said. Right? Send them away, and we can't do this. We have no more than five loaves. Now Jesus says two things in this passage as well. He says this in response to the two objections and quote-unquote logical arguments of his followers. <coughs> Excuse me. Both of Jesus' statements are commands to the twelve. First, you give them something to eat. And I like this. Because he, he didn't tell them how. He just told them to do it. You give them something to eat. This is not panic. He didn't look at them and be like, how are we going to feed them? He, he didn't look at the 12 and, and well, what, what are we going to do? He, he didn't look at them and said, you guys need to figure something out. We've got we've to deal with this problem. He didn't do anything like that, did he? He said, you give them something to eat. It was Jesus' instruction to them. And far too often, we, I think we do one of two things when we encounter the commands of God. We either take them as a suggestion or we make an excuse. This is not a suggestion. God's commands are never a suggestion. Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. There was a time in church history, I mean, a lot of times throughout church history, where the commands of God were taken seriously. And now I'm not saying this to point fingers. I am as guilty, if not more so, than anybody else of disobeying God. Um, I wish I wasn't, but I am. But there was a time when it was taken seriously. I think over the last 60, 70, 80 years, that has changed, hasn't it? I think it's changed a lot. Right? A hundred years ago, there was sexual immorality, but it wasn't flaunted. It wasn't put on TV. They didn't write songs about it. A hundred years ago, people lied. And when they got caught, they were, they were chastised, or they were fired, or friendships ended. Now, eh, everybody lies, but we're not supposed to. You know, I, I, things have changed, haven't they? Things have changed. Now in the church, 
And, and I'm not saying our church or every church, but when we look at the big C church, the commands of God are being tossed aside because now they're inconvenient. Or now they aren't popular. Or now if you say that, you take the chance of being canceled. Now, granted, I don't think our influence is all that great that anybody's ever going to try to cancel me. Um, but the reality is, if the Bible says something's wrong, it's wrong. If the Bible says something's sin, it's sin. And if you or I disagree with what the Bible says, we are incorrect. Every single time. So the churches that are out there preaching that there's no such thing as sexual immorality, right? That you can have sex outside of marriage. The adultery is really not all that bad. Homosexuality is fine, right? And they're, and they're supporting all of this. They are wrong. Because that's not what the Bible says. Right? We, we live in a state. This is one of the things that it boggles my mind. And it's so, so difficult for me. Um, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I had two clients, a couple that I was counseling and, um, I was counseling them separately and, and I won't get into all the details. Um, but I ran, I haven't seen them in a while. Um, the, one of them really wanted me to approve of that person filing for divorce. So nobody in our church, nobody who even lives in Gunnison. So don't start guessing. Um, <laughs> But this person really wanted me to agree with them, that it was okay for them to file for divorce. And I'm like, has there been adultery? Has there been abuse? And no, 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 no. I just, it's just, it's not working. Well, then work at it. And they eventually stopped coming to see me. They didn't want to talk to me anymore. So I found, I found a new counselor. I'm going to try a new counselor. Okay. So I talked to the other person who was part of this later on because the new counselor told him the same thing. No. You, you really don't have biblical grounds for divorce. You need to work on your marriage. So they dropped that counselor and then went to a third counselor. They finally found the counselor that agreed with them that it was okay to file for divorce. And so I ran into the other person uh, just a couple weeks ago and their spouse had filed for divorce. But that's not what God wants. Now, there are biblical reasons for divorce and that's another message um, that we're not going to get into at the moment. But we live in a state that has what's called a no-fault divorce law. All you got to do is you don't even need to go to a judge. You just need to drop the paperwork and say, I'm divorcing this person. And it's not their fault. It's not my fault. Or however you want to say, you don't have to give a reason. You don't have to do anything. You can just file the paperwork and you're divorced. It takes a couple days to dissolve what is supposed to be a lifelong covenant. It's incredible to me. And there's too many churches that are like, yeah, that's okay. I've had people come to me who were divorced. And they told me, I got divorced. Okay, what were the reasons behind it? Some of the time, I've, I've heard some really good reasons. Some of the time, I, I had one person, well, just like that couple I just talked about, it just wasn't working. So we split up. Can I serve? No. Oh, I don't think that's hard to say. Have you repented of it? Well, I don't really think I have anything to repent of. Yes, you do. Will God forgive you? Yeah, 100%. Can God still use you? 
Yeah, if God couldn't use us because of the stupid things we did in our past, we'd all be dead, right? None of us would be here. I certainly wouldn't be up here sharing the word with anybody 100% of the time. But if you did something and it was wrong, you try to make it right. If it can't be made right, you need to at very least repent of it. But some people are like, yeah, I did. and it's okay. It's not a big deal. I don't need to repent over that. Yeah, you do. I'm belaboring this point a little, aren't I? God's commands are not suggestions. Now, I actually couldn't tell you the number of commands there are in Scripture. There are 613 Old Testament laws. Now, if we just take the Ten Commandments, right? Just look at the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, not a suggestion. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor, not a suggestion. Don't commit murder, not a suggestion, right? These are commands, And then Jesus takes us back to the heart of that. If you look at a woman lustfully, that's adultery in your heart. Let's move on. If you hate somebody, murder in your heart. I've broken the commands of God. But it's not a suggestion. The other thing people like to do besides taking it as a suggestion is they like to make excuses. Don't make excuses. We talked a little bit about Moses earlier. Before Moses went to Egypt, before God used him to bring the plagues and to part the Red Sea, God met him in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Exodus and said, I'm sending you. Specifically in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's not too bad, right? Right? I'm not worthy of this. But what were some of Moses' other excuses? Right? First, he said, well, I don't know what your name is. So if I go and tell them that that somebody sent me and I don't know your name, then they're not going to listen. So God says, fine. Tell them I am that I am sent you. Okay? Um, Well, I won't have any proof that you sent me. God says, fine. You'll use this staff in your hand. Right? He does the thing with the snake and all that. There you go. Now, now you'll have proof. Oh, well, but you know, God, I'm not a good public speaker, right? I, I stutter. I'm not eloquent. That, that's not going to work out. God says, fine, your brother Levi will speak for you. You still need to go. Finally, Moses looks at God and he goes, can you just send someone else? I mean, it's in there. <laughs> it's in there. Can you just, just send someone else? I, uh, it, I'm not up for it. I'm not in the mood. It's, it's. What? Absolutely not. Don't make excuses. God has a beautiful way of overcoming our excuses. And he has a beautiful way of overcoming our inability, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. His second command, make them sit down. Right? Make them sit down in groups of 50. Verse 15, they did so. And made them all sit down. Now, I've said it many times that I wish we could hear tone of voice and we could see body language and facial expression in Scripture. I'm not saying Jesus was angry with them. I'm just suggesting that after the 12 gave excuses for not following Jesus' first command, the way he gave the second command apparently got their attention. It got them to move. Right? So I I can see the conversation. This is not scriptural. This is me guessing. 
Well, Jesus, the 12 come, you know, we need to do this. And Jesus may have looked and said, well, you give them something to eat. Oh, but we, we only have five fish. We don't have enough money. Go make them sit down. Yes, sir. Right? I kind of think he got out the dad voice. You guys know the dad voice? Now, everybody thinks the dad voice is scary. I think the mom voice is scarier because dads tend to be a little more short-tempered than moms. And if you make the mom mad, you're in trouble. Just, I remember uh, when my wife and I taught together, and I know I've told this story before, but I love to tell it. Um, when my wife and I taught together uh, in, in the, the little school down in Branson, Colorado, um, I would hear her in her room. Usually didn't happen with her littles, but at one point in time, she was working with some junior hires, which I highly don't, don't recommend. Don't work with junior high school students. It takes a very special person, like if Cynthia were here, she'd be shaking her head, telling me how much she loves junior hires, and I would be looking at her like she's insane, because there's something happens somewhere around sixth grade that doesn't correct itself until you're in your 30s, where just you, you're, you become dumb. I, I don't know why. Um, I, apparently, my children don't go through that. My children are wonderful. Talk to me later when I'm not being recorded. But something about junior high school students. But I would walk by the room when she was working with the junior high school students, and I would hear this tone in her voice. And I would stick my head in the classroom, and I'd look at the kids. I'm like, you need to listen to Miss Starr. And they'd look at me like, I'm like, listen, I'm married to her. I know that tone. It's, she's getting close, and you do not want to see her angry. And I'd walk away. I wouldn't yell at them. I wouldn't chastise them. I would just like, I would warn them. I was looking out for the well-being of these poor children who were going to unleash the wrath of my wife. And you look at her, right? Oh, she's never that way. She's sweet and perfect. Yeah, she is. Just don't make her angry. Um, of course, then she married me, and I kind of think making her angry is a, a, a hobby. Um, but that's for some other time. So whatever happened, somehow what, the way Jesus said it, the way he said it, woke them up. So then what did he do? Verse 16. So he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he, looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up. I do want to point something out, which I think is very, very cool. Um, I think I've told you about the, the Bible that I purchased that restored a lot of the Hebrew language to the scriptures. Well, we were reading this passage as a family yesterday during our devotion time, and we were using that version of the Bible. It's called um, the Tree of Life version, TLV, the Tree of Life version. And when, here when it says that he blessed the food, the word there, um, it's a Hebrew prayer, Barak. B, not, not Obama, different kind of Barak. Um, and I'm probably saying it wrong anyway because my Hebrew and Greek pronunciation is terrible. Um, but if you've watched The Chosen, you'll hear this prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Um, oh, and I forgot how the rest of it goes. Blessed are you, Lord our God. Right. For you've created the fruit of the vine, and then the other one is you've provided the grain of the earth, something like that. But it was a Hebrew prayer. That's what he would have said over this. 
which is kind of cool because we don't get that language, right? The, the, the New Testament, they just said he blessed the food. Now, to a Jewish listener, that's what would come to their mind because that blessing over the wine and blessing over the bread is what they said every time they ate. Um, to us, a Gentile audience removed by 2,000 years, that, that language doesn't have the same meaning to us. But they, they bring it out in The Chosen, which I think is one of the things they do really well. Uh, and that's what he would have said. That would have been the prayer that he said over this meal. But once the, you know, somewhere around 15,000 people were seated, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it. Then he gave to the disciples who then gave to the people and everyone ate until they were filled. And I love this word. It means gorged in abundance, right? This is not, oh, you know, I had a sandwich and now I'm not hungry anymore. This is Thanksgiving dinner with, with the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the stuffing and the green beans with bacon and the sweet potatoes. And, and then afterwards, the, the chocolate pie, because pumpkin pie is gross. And and, and then after that, right, a couple hours later, when you don't feel like you're going to throw up anymore, you go get more turkey and more stuffing and more mashed potatoes and you dump more gravy and you throw it in the microwave and you eat again. Because it's that, that's what the word describes. That's how full the people were. And there was leftovers. So I'm going to draw two things out of this and then we're going to close. First, Jesus can take what little we have and do the extraordinary. Jesus can take what little we have and do the extraordinary. Our God is a God of multiplication. Remember the parable of the sower. The one who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Matthew 13, 23. We talked from John 15 last week that God is the one who produces the fruit. We just bear it. What God, so what does God do with that fruit? He multiplies it. And far, far too often we try to figure out what we can do or we make excuses because, you know, we're not as talented as that person or as smart as the other person or as good looking as the other person. But God doesn't care. He doesn't care about those things. Because he is the one who does it. When we willingly offer ourselves to him, no matter how small an offering that may seem to be, he will multiply it. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He will take, right? First, he provides the seed. And then he multiplies it. Because we don't produce the fruit. He produces it. We bear the fruit as we abide in him. And then he multiplies it. I cannot tell you how many times, how many conversations I've had with people, how many times I have felt this way myself. I'm not good enough. No, I'm not. I've had somebody come to me. I, I can't do that. I'm not, I, I'm not smart. If God only used smart people, I'd be in trouble. Oh, I, I can't do that. I'm not good in front of people. Okay. You don't have to be good in front of people. You have to be obedient. Well, but, but all the only thing I'm good at is this. 
Right? I've had people tell me that. Well, the only thing I'm, I'm you know, I, I, don't, I don't know the Bible and, and, and I can't preach and I can't lead Sunday school. The only, the only thing I'm good at is fill in the blank. Right? The, the only thing I'm good at is, is construction. Or the only thing I'm good at is mechanics. Or the only thing I'm good at is teaching mathematics. If you can teach math, you're a lot smarter than you think. But excuse after excuse that this is all I've got. Take the little bit that you've got. I don't care what it is and give it to him. He'll do with it what he wants to do. He'll take that little bit and he'll multiply it in a miraculous way. Two, what we receive from him is what we give to others. What we receive from him is what we give to others. Jesus took the bread and the fish, he blessed it, and he gave it to the disciples, and then they gave it to the people. Back in the 80s, now this was before my time, I've only heard of it, but apparently Reagan um, coined a term, trickle-down economics. Now don't ask me to explain it, I, I don't do economics, I'm happy when my checkbook is mostly balanced. Um, but that was the phrase, and if I remember correctly, right, if, if you're if you, if you don't tax the big businesses, then they, they give more to the, their workers who then spend more in the, econ in the, the economy and it, it creates, you know, like the Lion King, it creates the circle of life. Um, so I'm going to call this trickle-down ministry. Right? We, we don't have anything to give. Jesus has it all. You go back to that uh, John chapter 15, verse 5, without me you can do nothing. That's very true. But then Jesus gives to us. And whatever he gives to us, we can then give to others. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Think for a moment about what you and I have received from God. We've received grace, mercy, forgiveness. So that's what we should give. We've received love, life, and purpose. So that's what we should give. We've received truth, hope, and, and a future. And that's what we can give. We are ambassadors for Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. And everything we have received from God... We have received freely, and therefore we should give to others in the same way. And I, I love that. That's kingdom economics. And I've always loved kingdom economics. Right? I don't understand real economics, but I understand kingdom economics. And in kingdom ec economics, you can give a little to God and he can do a great thing. Right? In kingdom economics, the servant will be highly exalted. In kingdom economics, the humble will be the ones that God glorifies. Right? The kingdom of God, his economics work differently. In the kingdom of God, he gives us all of this for free and he tells us to give it away. Now, don't let that reflect, you know, when the plate gets passed. But, you get the picture. I'm not, I'm not asking for money, I promise. 
But, but the point is very, very simple. The disciples didn't have anything, so Jesus gave it to them, and then he multiplied it. Oh, it's gorgeous. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love the NLT, uh, the New Living Translation of that same verse, 1 Peter 4.10. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. As we close, when Jesus fed the 5,000, really the 10 to 15,000, he showed us four things. First, that in him we should not operate in our own understanding, but we should trust him. Second, we should not make excuses or treat his commandments as suggestions, but obey him. Third, we should not limit him by our own lack, but trust him to multiply. And fourth, we should take what we have received from him and give it to others. With that, I want to close with a few questions to help us think this over in our own lives. So first and foremost, this is the most important question, and that is, have you received salvation from Jesus Christ? He offers this as a free gift of his grace to all who will turn from their sin and believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you're here or if you're online or you're listening to this recording and you have never received that free gift, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, turning from your sin and accepting his salvation, today's the day. You can talk to me. You can, you can go to our website, newsongunnison.net, and, and go to the contact page. You can, if you're on Facebook, you can leave a comment and I will, or somebody will get in touch with you and we will talk to you and help you know Christ as Savior. Number two, is there some aspect of our lives where we are using our own understanding and thereby missing what God wants to do in us or through us? Don't answer that question right now, but think about it. Is there a place in your life where, where God wants to do a work, maybe it's in you, maybe he wants to deal with something in you, or maybe it's through you, he wants to use you in some way, but you're trying to figure it out, you're trying to understand it, you're trying to reason it. Number three, what are we doing with the commands God has given us in his word? Are we treating them like suggestions? Are we making excuses? Or are we hearing his word and by his grace and the empowering of his spirit obeying them? Now, I don't ask that question, as I said earlier, as one who does this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly. None of us do. But I'll tell you, if you've been in the word, you've come across something that God has asked you to do. Period. Are you doing it? Right? We can only do it as the spirit empowers us. But are you doing it? Number four, what in our lives are we failing to give to God because we don't think it's significant? I really like this question. And I'm not saying that because I wrote it down. I just really like this question because I have to ask myself this question. What in our lives are we failing to give to God because we don't think it's significant? A talent, a skill, creativity, imagination, time, who knows? It doesn't really matter what it is because God wants it all. And he can take whatever we give him and multiply it in ways we could never 
imagine. Question number the fifth one. We have all received so much from our gracious God. Are we giving to others what we have received from him? Is there someone in, in our lives who needs grace, but we're not giving them grace? Is there someone in our life who needs forgiveness, but we're withholding it? Is there someone in our lives who we know needs to hear the gospel, but we haven't shared it? Do we have a gift that God has given us, but we're not using it to serve others? I could go on, but I think you get the picture. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, is a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As you think over these questions, which are all in the bulletin notes, or if you're listening to the recording, you can go back two, three minutes and listen to them again. Pray that prayer over each of these questions this week. Let God show you. Not because I want you to feel bad or because I want you to feel guilty or shame or anything like that. Because when I think over these questions, my answers aren't all shiny and, and perfect. But if you're honest with yourself and you're honest before God and you take the time to listen to what he wants to say to you about these things, he's going to show you. And it's just going to make your life, my life, our church, our families, our community, it's going to allow us to have a greater impact for his kingdom. Isn't that why we're here? To love the people around us with the love of Christ? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great love and for all that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and for your grace and kindness. I pray, Lord, that you would just give us wisdom as we seek you over these questions, that your spirit would speak, that your word would guide, and that we would hear you and walk with you in a way that brings you glory and serves those around us in the love of Christ. Amen.